Welcome to the Global Village Law and Money Podcast, where we help foreign nationals build a successful life in the United States. I'm your host, Shannon McNulty, a tax and estate attorney in New York City, and I'm joined by my co-host, Steve Maggi, an immigration attorney in St. Petersburg, Florida. In each episode, we share insights gained from advising thousands of foreign nationals moving to or living in the United States. From how to get a green card to saving money on taxes, we provide valuable tips on building wealth, protecting your family, and navigating the U.S. immigration system. We're so glad you could join us today. Let's get started. Hello, welcome to the Global Village Law and Money podcast. I'm Shannon McNulty, and I'm here with my co-host, Steve Maggi. Hi, and- Shannon. <laughs> always great to be with you. Great to have you here, as always, Steve. And today we're going to be talking about the current state of the law in the U.S. as it applies to foreign nationals and what you should be aware of, what changes are coming up and things that to keep in mind as this area of the law is ever evolving. So let's start off with immigration. Steve, why don't you tell us what is going on with immigration in 2022? Are there any changes, anything that we need to be aware of that's applicable to our audience. Yeah, I think the only constant when it comes to immigration law is the is change, right? Is but it ironically it's not what most of us are used to seeing or what we expect, especially our clients from civil law countries where the law is black and white and if you add a law to the civil code then it's new and that's what you follow and it's it's very clear. In the US we have jurisprudence, we have courts, but we also have a, a broken immigration system that essentially without a change in, in, in legislation means that the law stays the same, but the interpretation of the law is always changing. And so literally from case to case, month to month, we see how the executive branch is directing both immigration service and even the Department of State overseas in how to interpret and apply the law. It's always changing all the time. And then you add to that the X factor of of the pandemic that we've been going through, the incredible backlogs that were created. A lot of people, as we've seen not only across the private sector, but in in the public sector too, leaving their jobs or retiring and leaving the different heads of immigration, the different departments understaffed, which creates further backlogs, embassies now that certain divisions like the E2 investment divisions not even processing visas and then not giving us any idea of when that's going to happen. And so I think the take-home lesson here when it comes to changes in the law is you have to work with someone that's not only in it the, the trenches every day, but that knows the immigration system on both the interior and exterior parts, which is immigration service in the U.S. and also the embassies overseas, because People have to go through various processes a lot of times, and you have to understand how both of them are functioning. And then on a micro level, just like you, you've talked about federal versus state, right? Each embassy is sort of its own island and it makes its own rules. And certain embassies are well-staffed and certain aren't. Some prioritize certain visas, some don't. And so you have to work with someone that even knows how, let's say, the embassy in Jakarta works versus the one in Santiago de Chile, right? Like there's such micro differences and those impact people's lives. They're planning, 
when they can apply their, their investments to the U.S., open their businesses, move their families. All of that is inherently changing all the time. And you have to work with somebody that knows the ins and outs of that really complex system. Thank you for that update. Yeah, it, it's been disheartening to um, witness just how much backlog and how many delays there are. You know, was talking to someone asked you about this actually was someone who wanted to get a business visa yeah. from Colombia and it was two years more uh, that we were looking at just in terms of yeah actually I was just there and they notified me they was that they're not accepting those investment based petitions now and there's no they don't know when they're going to be accepting them so you already have to come up with your plan B and plan C a lot of contingencies are involved so it, it's frustrating for me and for my clients, but all we can do is work with the system. And because it's always changing, the key is to just be on top, to stay on top of it as much as you can. Okay, great. And unfortunately, I wish we had better news for our listeners, but uh, but there are still delays and we're really at the mercy of the government. And not only that, but also uh, each embassy and how it is dealing with all of these issues. But uh, But we're still seeing the effects of COVID and also just workforce disruption generally, which is, is really affecting our clients. And then I'm gonna ask you, I know this has just been decades in the making of, of a struggle of getting immigration reform, of DACA, anything to update us on any of those issues? Well, you've known me for probably a decade and you have to be an optimist to work as an immigration lawyer without giving up, you know, so you keep you keep pushing forward for your clients. But I, I would say that the chances of immigration reform look more and more bleak. And so then you have this push and pull of the executive branch coming in and passing what are called executive memoranda or executive orders to force certain kinds of immigration forward, like DACA, like the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, which happened 10 years ago. And then you see the intervention of the courts putting injunctive relief and, and, and stopping the stop orders on certain actions taken through the executive branch. And you go through this thing and then eventually hope that you get to the courts and, and up to the Supreme Court. And we've seen recently the Supreme Court is making extreme decisions that we I never would have contemplated before. And I worry that that could also happen on the immigration level, that could stop any forward progress. So 20 years of doing this, I, I'd say that we need some sort of miraculous change in the mentality of our congressional leaders in order to make this happen, to make it a priority again. So the immigration system can be fixed. So we just have to wait and see. Tell me about what's going on. Tell our audience about what's the changes in the law when it comes to trust in estates and, and planning and taxes and things that affect a lot of our foreign national clients. Sure. So I think the biggest one, which is just is we have some minor changes always, but this is a really big sea change. And it is the enactment of um, the Work Corporate Transparency Act. And this is going to give a lot of more transparency to financial transactions within the U.S. We've had the unfortunate distinction in recent years of being the number one most secretive financial jurisdiction in the world. Wow. I did not know that. I, I, I thought it was one of the Caribbean islands or Jersey or one of those destinations that you don't know where they are on the map until you look it up. It's really the yeah. U.S. is now number one. Huh? We are now number one. That's not a rating that you want to be proud of. 
Mm-hmm. So in order to try to mitigate that and to get us down to a better rating, the Congress did in 2021 enact this provision, enact this law, and it will require legal entities that are registered with a state to disclose either any individuals who have a controlling interest in the entity or a beneficial ownership of the entity of more than 25%. There are a lot of exemptions to this, particularly big corporations, any companies that are are large and already have a lot of registration requirements. So this is really getting at smaller kind of wealth planning entities, Mm -hmm. Um, so entities that are are really there for investment purposes. Mostly it's going to be LLCs, um, partnerships, those are the big ones that it's going to get to. Uh, there's some unknown. Or there's not a lot of clarity on how this will apply to trusts. Okay. Trusts are not directly covered because they are not filed with the state. Generally, they're not registered with the state. They're under private contract. They're private, right. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of times in planning, trusts will own an LLC or a, a limited partnership interest. And so those entities have reporting obligations. And so they are disclosing who their owners are and who has maybe the controlling interest. It might be a trustee. um, And then who is the beneficial owner might be beneficiaries of that trust. So this is really going to create, you know, on the positive side, hopefully reduce the incentive for money laundering or from uh, oligarchs trying to hide their money here. On the not so great side, it's going to require a lot more paperwork and compliance, regulatory compliance for people who are just doing regular planning. So I guess this is one of the first times I've seen where your your area of law was actually perhaps you could say behind mine, because when we do our investment cases, we need to show those UBOs, those ultimate beneficial owners. For the purposes of not only showing them the money trail, but also for characterizing or classifying companies in terms of their nationality based on majority ownership, which dictates what kind of visas you can use. So I think that it's interesting that this is now sort of spilled over into what you do. It's encouraging. We always want to send a message to other countries and and people with money that we want to do things the right way. But I think it's interesting, too, because you're going to see probably a diminishing amount of investment for those people that maybe don't want to do things the right way. And I guess in the long run, that's a positive thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think that we have been, (laughs) it's interesting, on the vanguard of transparency earlier on when we implemented FATCA. And, but interestingly, we, so that is basically required other countries to step up their game and disclose to our authorities, to the IRS. However, we have not been really reciprocal in our transparency. So that has caused a lot of friction and some pressure, but I think we're, we're finally getting, getting there. But other countries, CRS is a reporting regime that most other other developed countries have signed on to, the U.S. has not. 
but they have had these beneficial owner requirements for quite a while. So this is at least getting us partway to being on the level with other countries where. I wanted to ask you a question. It's a very, it's a very sort of minute or minutia point of law, but I, I think that it's important for our viewers to understand this. We have a federal system and then we have separate states, right? It's very different than a lot of countries, which are just completely federal. And we've seen in our private conversations, we've talked about this race to the bottom that we see where states are competing for investment. And so they can sort of change uh, what their requirements are in terms of reporting and all that for companies to be set up. And I'm sure this affects trusts, a lot of trusts. What does this mean, this federal legislation mean for that race to the bottom? How will it affect that? Yeah, hopefully it will put a bit of a stop to it, or at least slow it down. So what we had originally was a couple of jurisdictions that offered more secretive opportunities for planning and investment. Like minimal reporting, I guess. Yeah, minimal reporting. People are using straw men to hide um, the ultimate owner. And sometimes this, you know, to be fair, this this isn't always for nefarious purposes. This isn't always. Of most times it's not. Anonymity. Or, or oligarchs or anything. It's just private individuals who want to keep their matters private. And if they're not in the U.S., they don't really want the U.S. authorities maybe knowing what their their identities are. So the IRS does not have a very good reputation abroad. People are very scared of it. So they We're really, scared of it domestically. <laughs> yeah, we're all scared of the IRS. <laughs> and now they have a lot more funding, so we should be scared. <laughs> and states are competing. They're always fighting over sales tax and things and trying to you know, tax people, companies as much as they can as well, right? So Yeah, absolutely. So our states compete the way foreign countries compete. And well, so sorry. we have in tax rates, like this is a huge area in corporate tax, right? We're all constantly seeing countries trying to reduce their in, their corporate tax rate to attract more investment. And we're seeing somewhat, we'll see what happens with the negotiations about a corp- minimum tax. It looks like that may go forward, but, but we'll oh, see interesting. what happens with that. But you see the same thing again with our states, our individual states, whether it's Delaware or Nevada or New York is not usually on the list of attractive states <laughs> in terms of um, their laws and their taxes. But it certainly is one of the biggest destinations. So taxes aren't always the biggest driver. But this transparency issue has also been something that states have been competing on. So you originally had a couple of states that would offer greater secrecy. Exactly, and then yeah. you had other states that were allowing the same benefit because once one state does it, then they're attracting capital from other states. And so, right. you know, it kind of leads to this race to the bottom, whether it be state tax rates or transparency issues. So really the only way to affect that is to do it at the federal level, which is, I think, what Congress eventually realized that they had to do when it comes to uh, this financial secrecy. Interesting. Well, I was just, was I was talking about how Congress prioritizes certain things and immigration is usually at the bottom of that. So this is further proof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we're we're behind, but we're, we're at least we're we're getting we're getting there. Um, money, yeah. money. And this and affects, this affects not only foreign nationals. This affects people who are planning domestically as well. So, but, but it is something that's 
that people need to be aware of if they are planning on making investments here. Okay, great. And also, I guess I'll also bring up that New York has its own provision that if you buy real estate in New York, then you have to report your ownership of those of that that property, and it can't just be in an LLC. And that's a little bit oh, different because it's a public; okay. it can be a public record. Uh, right. Whereas the the federal level, it's going to the federal government, but that's not going to be something you can actually look up at in public records. Interesting. I wonder why New York would do that. That's a whole other topic we can talk about later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think There's it's other- similar reasons. They didn't want to be on the list of they were the biggest destination for buying properties for you know Russian oligarchs. <laughs> I remember that whole 57th Street corridor of high, super high rises. I mean, you never saw the lights on it buildings they were it's where people were you know supposedly hiding their money so yeah. oh and the other reason this is a big reason was that the properties were falling into disrepair and the tenants couldn't locate the landlords it was oh, just wow. a shell company and so yeah. there was nobody who was accountable for that and that's probably why what really drove uh this in new york because you have so many renters gotcha yeah there are a few other changes that you that we wanted to discuss as well right yeah, so the other things that to kind of just have on the radar are this is something that overlaps with immigration law, and this is expatriation, and okay. specifically expatriating unintentionally by giving up your green card or having your green card revoked by the government. And that was not something you were planning. So actually, why don't you tell us a little bit, Steve, about the immigration process as it applies to relinquishing your green card or having it revoked? Yeah, I think it's important for people to understand that amount of time you spend continuously out of the U.S. affects your the inference or the way that the interpretation of whether you maintain the U.S. as your primary domicile or not. So the rule of thumb is if you've spent more than one year outside the U.S. continuously, but less than two years, you are still eligible to re-enter the U.S. and you have to sub- you have to submit a petition, it's usually done through the U.S. embassies, to for a permission to re-enter the U.S. And that's when you have to show, justify why you were outside the United States for so long, because usually more than six months means red flag, right? More than half the time in one year spent abroad and not in your principal country of residence. And then you also have to show that you your intention is really to become a permanent resident again or to resume residing in the US principally. That's that's called a permission to re-enter. When you pass two consecutive years, it's really a gray area there. They assume by law that you abandon your residence. And then there's really it's really difficult. You can apply for that entry the, the permission to re-enter but in most cases, they don't they don't approve that, and then essentially, then you're, they they revoke your green card or your privileges as a permanent resident. The problem is what I saw during the pandemic is that a lot of people just assumed because maybe they're from countries that are actually understanding and flexible. The U.S. Immigration Administration is not either one of those. That oh, because of COVID, I went back to see my family, and then I couldn't leave, and then. I didn't feel safe coming back to the U.S. And the U.S. government says, well, from the very beginning, from our first travel ban going forward, March 14th, 2020, we made it clear that anyone outside the U.S. who was a green card holder was exempt from the travel ban. 
And so there really is no excuse that the U.S. government will accept now, more than two years later, if you want to come back and reestablish your green card or, or your permanent residence, which means you have to apply again. And if the, whatever entity or person that sponsored you, if that situation still doesn't exist, then you're not, you can't just reestablish it or, or, or turn it back on. As some people think they can just reactivate it. That's actually not the case. And so it's created this issue where a lot of people have by accident or based on their assumptions, given up their or caused themselves to lose their permanent residence status. Wow, that's so interesting and, and so important for people to know, because even though we might not have had a travel ban, that doesn't mean that in the country maybe they happen to be in that they were able to fly here anyway. So that seems um, very unfair to a lot of people. who It's unfair. And the, the, the take home lesson is track how much time you're spending in and out of the country. And if you need to get on a plane every six months or make sure that year hasn't passed, then you do it because otherwise your long-term future is at risk and, and you can't make any positive assumptions about how the U.S. government will interpret things when there's a gray area. You don't want to be in that gray area if you can avoid it. Yeah, and I know people work so hard to get that green card and then to lose it. Yeah, and that has, a, that has an effect on the, the exit tax and all, and the, that means that they're not, certainly if they're thinking about transitioning out of the U.S., then they're going to incorporate that tax-based strategy in there as well. But if they're improvising, then they're probably extending the amount of time that they're subject to those taxes and, and, and maybe putting their assets at risk. And who knows, right? It, it, it's not a good thing to improvise this on any level. Yeah. And so just in terms of the tax issues, if you have your green card for more than seven, basically seven years, kind of depends on how you calculate it, but that's you will be subject to this expatriation tax regime. And that could cause a whole lot of problems. It can end up being very, very costly to expatriate. And expatriate means you either relinquish your citizenship or you give up your green card that's been right. held for over those seven years. So after that seven year period, if you give up your green card or if you don't voluntarily give it up, but you lose it because yeah. you've been outside of the US for too long, then those expatriation taxes are triggered. And that can have a huge impact not only for you, but also for, for your family and for your kids on anything that you leave, leave behind. So that is something that I, I think a lot of people just aren't that aware of. And it's really important just to be cognizant of that seven-year period of when that expatriation tax is going to trigger. Yeah, I think what we've seen is that the system is not flexible enough to incorporate these global changes that are brought in external forces like a pandemic. Our law is not equipped to handle that. So you, even though you get caught up in the storm of these radical changes in your life and moving to another country, and maybe not being able to leave the country for a while. If, if, you know, a lot of people were not able to leave the countries where they were physically present at the time, but you have to keep in mind what, that the law is not flexible and, and how it will apply to you while you're going through all these other things. Yeah, the immigration authorities are not going to be understanding to your rationales or your reasons for it. No, and as we've seen, they're, they're not on the same page as the IRS. I think the U.S. government stance right now is if you want to leave, you're welcome to. That's why they don't even track the 
when people leave, you know, you don't have to go through immigration when you leave. If you want to leave and, and not come back, that's also fine with us as well, right? So don't assume that their country is going to be waiting with open arms. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's easy to get out for immigration purposes and lose your visa. It's not so easy to get out of the IRS's arms. Yeah. So it's going to get you some way or another. So you definitely think that the take home of this is that you want to have a plan in place. Don't just wing it. Don't just say, oh, well. You know, maybe I'm just going to go and stay in my home country. Maybe I'll come back. You really need to have a plan and, and get expert help to uh, to make the most of both your immigration status and your your financial situation. Yeah, I think you would probably agree with me that we've gotten more calls on weekends and evenings these last two years than we ever got because we have so many of these extreme situations. And I always encourage my clients to pick up the phone or send a message if they have any doubts, if their situation is changing radically, to let me know. Because we have to know, both of us, long-term and short-term, what the effects of those changes are and help our clients prepare for those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it's great to have that relationship with an attorney that you can turn to for those kinds of questions. And if they don't know, if the attorney doesn't know that at least they generally they're going to have a network of people who they can refer you to either, you know, an accountant, another type of attorney right. uh, to, to work through those issues. Don't talk to your friends and family. Don't go on online forums and say someone else went through something similar. So I'm going to do what they did. You know, a lot of, it's amazing how many people do that. Ask the experts. You know? Yes, yes. And it can have some very unfortunate results. But that's what we're here for, to help to navigate our clients, help our clients navigate these issues. And if we can be of help, just please reach out to either one of us and we will, we will see you on our next episode. Thanks so much, Steve. All right, thank you. See everyone soon. Thanks for listening to the Global Village Law & Money Podcast. For more tips on protecting your family and building wealth in the US, subscribe to the Global Village Law & Money Newsletter by visiting www.globalvillagelaw.com.